Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. So, good morning. God is love. Yes. Yes. Amen. But did you know that there are things that God hates? So, we're going to talk about that this morning. We're in the upward journey... As this picture shows us, we've been in it for a while, and we have a couple more weeks of it. This last portion of the upward journey is looking at things God hates. It comes from a couple verses in the book of Proverbs, which we're going to look at. Um, But the upward journey is about getting to know God better, and knowing a person's likes and dislikes is an important part of the relationship. right? So we want to look at um, some things that God hates, This morning, we're going to talk about how God hates haughty eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear this phrase, I can't help but think of the 1980s song, Hungry Eyes, uh, by the one-hit wonder, Eric Carmen. I had to look him up. I had no idea who sung that. Um, I'm not of that generation that many of you are. That's okay. I wanted wanted, uh, Pastor Cameron to do a parody of that song, but instead of hungry eyes, to sing haughty eyes, a lying tongue he will despise. Yeah. But he wasn't interested. In fact, I didn't even ask him because I thought that would, that just wouldn't be good. So, haughty eyes. We're going to look at what they are, why God hates them, and what we're going to do about it. What they are, why God hates them, and what are we to do about it. Before that, we want to look at where this phrase comes from, where, what context is this situated in. And it's in the book of Proverbs. Actually, we'll go... Not yet. Oh, now I'm going forward. Let's, gosh, I got it. All right. So the book of Proverbs is, comes after the book of Psalms and before the book of Ecclesiastes. It's part of the wisdom tradition, the wisdom literature in ancient... Uh, Israel and in the Old Testament. Wisdom literature consists of three books, uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. If you were to personify each one of those books, Proverbs would be the young, brilliant teacher, Ecclesiastes would be the middle-aged cynic, and Job would be the weathered old man who's been through a lot in life. And they each have something to say about wisdom, uh, about how God's wa- how the world works, and about how to flourish in the world. Um, and so the book of Job, or the book of Proverbs, rather, talks about, it, it introduces God's chokmah, his wisdom, and it, how it's thread throughout, throughout our life, how we want to tap into wisdom. And it says, in the, early on in the book of Proverbs, in, in chapter 1, it says that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so although um, wisdom in and of itself could be used for good and for evil, right? When it's used for evil, it's actually often called shrewdness. Um, when, When the advisor of David's son plotted a plan for him to have relations with his sister, it was shrewdness, but it was actually wisdom. It was, the word is wisdom, but it was used for evil purposes. The fear of the Lord, then, is the foundation of true wisdom because it's built into 
knowing God and, and, and tapping into the wisdom that we have to, to act out of that. So, this is where, this is the situation in which Proverbs 6 talks about um, haughty eyes. And the, and the context of Proverbs 6 is that it's actually parents or a parent speaking to their children. Now, often, the book of Proverbs is talked about or written to kind of an audience of, of in bloom, an audience on the cusp of entering into full-fledged adult life. And they're, and they're receiving all this instruction and wisdom in terms of how to live in this world. What to think about, how to, how to care about instruction and, and, and revere God. And so kind of as advice to, to, to adolescence, but also for everyone, this is what it says. Going backwards again. So Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. It says, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. And notice how it goes kind of from head to toe in the first, in the first five. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Now this, this six things, seven, that's an ancient form of, of poetry where it's actually building to the last point. To where this, this is kind of making the point that the, the thing God hates the most is the one who spreads strife among brothers. And, he, and yet he hates them all. In Proverbs 30, this little three, but it says three things, four. It's used five or six times to, to talk about to help us understand who God is and, the, and, and what he likes and the things that he cares about. Um, and so we're going to look at the first one. Haughty eyes. We want to we ask, what are they? And it, and it starts which is with this. It's, it's actually not the word haughty as much as it is the word high or elevated. We want to pay attention this morning to the vertical plane. There's a lot of vertical plane going on. Haughty eyes are when you take your eyes and you elevate yourself above other people to where you're seeing yourself as superior to other people or other, other, every, anything that you see yourself as elevated above, you're having haughty eyes. The word is actually used, for instance, with the ark, Noah's ark. It says the waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. That's the, that's the word high above or exalted. It's also, if, when I say I will exalt the Lord, it says it thousands of times in the scripture. I will exalt the Lord. It's I will lift him up. I will elevate him. It's the same word, haughty eye, elevated eyes, high eyes, where you're seeing yourself as above other people. And C.S. Lewis has a, has a helpful quote. I'm going to refer to him a few times this morning. He has a little chapter in his Mere Christianity that's just called The Great Sin, and it's all about pride. And so I'm actually going to talk about haughty eyes and just kind of change the language to pride, because that's really what it is. It's, it's, it's pride, it's, it's self-elevation. Um, and so he says this, a proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And so that's, that's the vertical dimension. That's the vertical plane where you're elevating yourself above 
other people. And actually, as you're doing that, you're limiting yourself from, you're, you're, you're closing yourself off to God. Because God is the one who is above. We are on the same plane as everybody else, but, and God is the one who is above. And yet, naturally, in our flesh, we elevate ourselves. When, it, when it's to our advantage, when, we want, when, when, it's, when, it, when it helps us feel better, we elevate ourselves. And that's what God hates. Some synonyms for haughty, arrogant, self-conceited, boastful, insolent, vainglorious, vain, egotistical, cocky, self-important, and hubris. Um, the word hubris is interesting. So in, where this, in Proverbs 6, where it says elevated eyes in the Hebrew text, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament into Greek for the Greek-speaking world of the time of Jesus, it's, it actually says hubris eyes. If you've never heard of the word hubris, hubris is, is as a really has a lot of context in Greek mythology where there's several different stories, but one of the stories is um, this, this lady named, what's her name? Niobe. Uh, she has all these children. She's the daughter of this king, and she has all these children, and she, she becomes very boastful or very proud in the, in the negative sense of, of all of what she's done for herself. And so there's this festival to the goddess Leto, and, and Niobe stands up and, and interrupts the whole festival and says, look at me, look at all that I have. I am better than, than Leto, this goddess. She's elevated herself above the gods. And that's kind of the epitome of hubris. And Septuagint uses the word hubris for haughty eyes, where you've elevated yourself above God and you can only look down. That's, that's the mentality, that's the way of thinking with haughty eyes. Has anybody ever read, and if you have, I'll shake your hand and be impressed because it's very hard to read. Has anybody ever read John Milton's Paradise Lost? Anyone ever heard of it? Okay, cool. Um, it's, it's kind of the epitome of, of English, archaic English poetry. It's, it's, everyone, it's brilliant, and it's been translated in hundreds of different languages. Um, but, but in Paradise Lost, the poet John Milton depicts the fall of humanity, the fall of Satan, and the fall of humanity, and, and all of the chaos that goes into that with Adam and Eve and Lucifer. But it's this very long, intricate poem where Lucifer at one point says, um, it's, he says, better to... Let me show the picture. This is a depiction of, of Lucifer being cast out of heaven down to hell. And he says, at one point, Lucifer says, it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. So even in, his, even in being cast to hell, Lucifer maintains this, this self-elevation, this pride that got him there in the first place. Where he says, I don't have what I used to have, but look at now, I still have all of these demons serving me. It's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. His whole um, mindset is based off of an elevated spirit. There's, a, there's this vertical dimension. Again, we see it. Satan's cast down, and he still is looking down. He still is looking down at, at everything that's below him in his mind. Proverbs in another place says this is familiar 
verse, but it just says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. There are a couple different aspects of, of pride that I want to look at. One is competition. Pride is essentially competitive. And we live in a culture that is incredibly competitive. Right? For me, competition is just, it feels like it's in my blood. I grew up playing sports and with my siblings, competition was the fuel to our, our fire. Where, where it's all about winning and it's all about leveraging. And even if I have to lie and even if I have to cheat and even if I have, whatever I have to do to get to win, I am going to win because competition is, winning is the, is the, is the goal and competition is, is, is the context of, of my life. And we actually, there's, there's so much competition in our life that, that we, competition and comparison actually go hand in hand where we, we want to we be better than the next person and so we compare ourselves. And when we compare ourselves, we, we either feel inferior or we feel superior. And if we feel superior, then we, we, have a boast, we, we have something to boast about so we can look down on others. And if we feel inferior, then that's my enemy. And my enemy is the one who is better than me at this thing, or who has more money than me, or who looks better than me, or who, who owns a nicer car than me, or who lives in a bigger house than me. Because we're in our flesh, breathing the air of competition and comparison, which is, which is the, 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 the air that pride loves to breathe. A Lewis quote, there's a few here, the more pride you have, the more you dislike pride in others. So if you find yourself really just hating that arrogant person, okay, that's, that's an indicator that you have quite a high level of pride because your pride is competing with their pride and you don't like it. Okay, so this is, this is how it works. And so we can, we can get off the hook when we say, well, I don't, I don't, I'm actually not prideful because I'm pretty humble. Well, that's, that's kind of exactly where pride wants to meet you is in the disguise of, of, of false humility. Here's a longer uh, quote from Lewis as well, because I just thought it was fitting. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, we would be... There will be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Okay, another aspect that I want to mention is, is, is the judgmental spirit and how pride latches onto and bolsters the, the feeling of, of the judgmental spirit because what's happening is you're, you've elevated yourself and from this place of superiority, you're able to now play God and, and cast judgment on this person because look at what they're wearing or look at how they're talking or look at how they're behaving and I'm better than them. I'm better than them for, for, out, of, out of my own self-built image and so I'm, I've elevated myself and I'm, I'm judging this person. Um, there's obvious ways and not so obvious ways. Uh, the Bible talks about out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this would be an obvious 
aspect of pride, where you're, you're actually boasting about yourself, or you're, you're speaking arrogantly about a situation that you've come out victorious in, and if you, even if you haven't, you're speaking as if you have. And, but, but the not-so-obvious way is, um, is this the, the, the realization that although out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, we don't always say what's in our heart. And if we did, it would be a, we would be in a lot worse of a situation. Right? Our heart is full of all sorts of uh, comparisons and leverages and, and trying to, to make ourselves come out on top. And only, only very few of those things actually come out of our mouth. But it's, but it's still inside. So what are haughty eyes? All these, all these things. Why does God hate them? Uh, for one, they're, they're sin and rebellion. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, is sin. Right? There's, there's that verse that says, a lamp, you are a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, when it's talking about God. When it comes to, to pride and haughtiness, that's, that's, you've, you've actually replaced God, and now, and now your lamp is your own your own desires or your own self-image or your, whatever, whatever it is that, that's elevated you, that's now your lamp and that's leading you and it's replaced the Lord. So this is, this is sin because it's rebellion against God. It's an anti-God state of mind where you put yourself in the position of judge. You put yourself in the position of ruler and of you're maybe a self-made individual. Uh, you, 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 you're carrying in that point a a haughty spirit, haughty eyes, a prideful spirit. And, and, and this is the thing that God hates, that attitude. And I want to make the point that it's, it's, it's the attitude, the disposition that God hates. It's not you as an individual. It's when you carry this, this boastful, uh, arrogant uh, attitude. It's the attitude that God hates. It, of course, is not you. Pride resists submission to authority which is necessary to know God. So to, so to know God, you, we need to submit to him, to come up under the waterfall of his grace. But pride resists any form of submission because it's self-elevating. And so you can't submit to God if you're trying to elevate yourself. Resist submission, which is necessary to know God, which is why God hates it. it here's a, here's a, a couple ways that it, that it plays into daily life. It pre- pride prevents you from confessing sin. You, you have the self-awareness maybe enough to recognize when you've sinned or when, you know, in an argument or in a, you're caught in a, in a lie. It's pride that wants to, wants to make you justify yourself um, so to where you don't even, as you're talking, you don't even believe that what you did was wrong. Or, or as you're as you're talking, you're, you're actually lying and saying that your motivation was innocent when you know it, was, when you know it wasn't. Um, in the, when you're in the middle of sin, whether it's stealing or cheating or lying or deceiving or lusting or any of, any of, any of the things that you know deep down are against God, you numb yourself to God's presence because pride cannot look up. Pride cannot look up, so you just you numb yourself. You, you carry through with that sin. You, you finish it out. Because you can't look up. You're looking down. You've, you've made yourself the Lord of that situation. 
And you, you refuse to look up because looking up would be submission. Looking up would be recognizing the wrong of the situation. And then so, you, so you have to stay looking down. And you close yourself off to God. The independent spirit. Here's, um, independent spirit would be, I don't need anybody. I don't need your help. I don't need anybody because I am on, I'm in charge of my life. I'm in charge of I'm a leader, I'm in charge of these people, and I don't want to recognize that I need help. I have an independent spirit and unwilling to, to recognize that other people um, are, are, can help me in my situation. Spiritual pride is, is an aspect, uh, particularly in the church, that where pride really grabs a hold of us to where we think that because we have this piety or because we live this life or because, uh, you know, the sins that other people are plagued with, we're freed from or at least they're, they're more hidden in our lives than in other people's lives. Uh, we, can, we can begin to actually lose sight of the grace of God that sustains that in the first place and begin to, rec- begin to feel that, look, I, I am a better person spiritually because I pray or because I fast or because I know God, or I go to church, I'm a better person than those people who don't. That's a form of spiritual pride that actually is ignorant of the fact that it's God's grace that got you to the place that you are, to the place of recognizing your need for him. But in, in, in elevating yourself above somebody else, you've forgotten your, your, your constant dependence on him. And you've put yourself on your own island above um, above the other person, to where you're no longer on the same plane, uh, both sinners justified by God's grace, and you've elevated yourself to where now I'm better, now I, I, have, I can look down on another person. This was the, the classic example of Pharisaism that Jesus railed against in the New Testament. He, he hated the fact that the Pharisees elevated themselves above the tax collectors and sinners and ignored the grace of God that, that gave them the law, that gave them the temple and the, and the whole uh, sacrificial system that he was going to fulfill. He hated it uh, because he recognized the heart condition. And that's what, that's what pride is. It's a heart condition. It manifests itself in internal thoughts and external actions and behavior, but really it's a heart condition that even on my best day, I fight with. And even on your best day is present in some aspect of comparison or our competition. And so what are we to do with, what are we to do about it? It brings us to our constant need for Jesus. Uh, we can often segment our reality and think, well, I needed, I needed Jesus in to forgive my sin and now I'm forgiven and now I'm free, so now I'm better. Now I'm, be- I'm a better person, I'm a better individual. But, but it, it actually is, is a segmented, not true reality because we have a constant need for Jesus. It, w- it was the submission that got you saved, and it's a, it's a submission that keeps you humble. It's a submission that keeps you in constant recognition of your need for, for Jesus in every situation. There's a couple things that Jesus says, um, but his, his life was marked by 
by humility. One who was in every respect entitled, if you will, to, to pride was the lowest of low. And we have a lot to learn from the situation. Jesus, the God-man, was born in the lowliest conditions and yet lived a perfect life of complete obedience to God, marked by peace, justice, compassion, love, and humility. And he invites us all to follow him on that narrow way. There's a couple things that Jesus said that are striking in this regard. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does he mean by poor in spirit? It simply means those whose spirits recognize their dependence and need for him. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You, you, you live in the awareness that I need you, Lord. I need you to, to, to replace in me the spirit of pride with the spirit of humility and recognition of your grace and, and dependence on, on your character and your spirit every, every day, every part of my life. My spirit is, is poor in the sense that I recognize my need for you. And then he says, this couple chapters later in Matthew, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So he's getting past the the pretense of pride that, that tries to build a case, build a Uh, a false platform to elevate yourself on. He says, come to me and find rest for the constant striving, the constant comparison, the constant game of tug tug and war and and superiority and inferiority and find rest for your souls and knowing that everything everything you need is found in me. I am gentle and humble in heart. The the verse that, that, that carries us through the upward journey is, is uh, first, or 2 Corinthians 3.18 that says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. So it's, it's this mirror analogy where when we look at Jesus, he's gentle and humble in heart. When we look at him and when we see him and when we know him as that, we reflect him like we're looking in a mirror. It's like you're looking in a mirror and yet you're seeing Jesus. And as you see Jesus, he begins to reflect his nature and his character and his disposition into your life. It doesn't need to change your personality. It doesn't need to change your history. But it changes the way that you talk and the way that you think because you begin to reflect the nature and the character of Jesus who is gentle and humble in heart. All right. What does the upward journey look like as an individual and as a church? The upward journey looks like getting low, in, in the dirt. Humble is, is a word that, that actually just means in the dirt, which, which is uncomfortable to think about because we want to be clean. As an individual... The upward journey, going up and knowing more of God, knowing who he is, actually looks like going low and being humble and recognizing our constant need for Jesus, that we have no advantage over anybody else yet for the grace of God that has been given to us in Christ. That is our boast. Our boast is in the cross and what Jesus has done for us that we can never do for ourselves, not in anything we've done. It's not in anything we've done or earned or bought or attained or possessed through our own efforts, but it's in the grace that he's given to us 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us that we, so we could know God. That's what we boast in. That's, what our, that's where our pride is situated, in the spot of looking up and recognizing our constant need for God. What does it look like as a church to go on the upward journey? It looks like collectively recognizing that I am no better, I'm on a platform, but I am no better than anyone else in this, in this room. I am actually need to recognize, we're going to look at a passage in Philippians, I actually want to, tr- I want to look at you as better than myself. Because that's the way that Jesus lived. That's the way that Jesus, that's, that's the way that he, he lived his life by recognizing um, that, that what he had was, he was so self-aware and so confident and yet humble in, in who he was that he was able to treat others as better than himself. As a church, it looks like um, yeah, not, not having any area that we begin to boast about ourselves or about our church or about any efforts that we're doing uh, apart from what God has given to us in Christ. I just want to, as, as, a, as a way to focus our attention in, in conclusion, I want to look at this passage in Philippians. It's a, it's a beautiful depiction of, 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 the, of the, the humiliation of Jesus and an invitation for us to follow him in that. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I'm just going to read it and we'll... Uh, sit in it for a moment. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, he's talking to a church here, he's talking to a group of Christians gathered in, in Philippi, fellowship of the Spirit, the community that's formed in the Spirit, any, com- any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. He calls conceit empty because that's what it is. It's pretense. It's, it's fake. Nothing to be conceited about except for what Christ has done. Empty conceit. But with humility of mind and regard for one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others. In the place of humility, you're able to actually see the other. You can move from a place of selfishness and self-concern to a place of selflessness, Christ-likeness, and concern for the interests of others on top of and above your own personal interests. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the attitude we are to have. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And then he taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He who is perfect in every way, very God of very God, humbling himself and taking on the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
It says in James and in 1 Peter that God opposes the proud and he favors the humble. That he, 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 he opposes the proud and yet he exalts the humble. And Jesus is, is, the, is the epitome of this, of this transaction where, where in, the, in the very humiliation of Jesus, death and yet death on a cross, he elevates him higher than any other thing that every knee would bow to the name of Jesus because he is so high. That's the reality of, of our existence, that every knee will bow to the name of Jesus. The prayer is that as we see him, we, we would begin to every area of our life get low and recognize our need to step up under the waterfall of his grace. We have nothing to boast in. We have nothing to, to become conceited about. It's empty. Yet for knowing Christ and being found in him, reflecting his nature. When we see him, we become like him. So that's our prayer, that we would see him and we would become like him in the, in the way that he gave himself and he humbled himself. We want to go through that same thing daily. It's a daily dependence, a daily need for his grace and sufficiency. Uh, to, to, to live in the, in the open pastures of his grace. So, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus, and we choose right now to boast in nothing but the cross. We boast in nothing but the, the work and the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us we can never do for ourselves. God, we, we, we pray for the help of your Spirit to walk the narrow road of humility when we live in a culture and we even breathe the air of competition and comparison. God, we reject uh, those things. We reject the judgmental uh, mentality that, that wants to elevate ourselves. God, we intentionally and willfully and, and submittingly get low and recognize that we're no better than anybody else but for what you've given us in Christ. That we're on equal plane, the foot is level, or the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We pray, God, uh, for your spirit to do that work in us and transform us into the image of Jesus for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.